Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website. Everyone in the world has gone to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened and risen. There is the nobleness of the human spirit, despite it all, black and white, Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, fat, vowed or celibate, we rise. afternoon. You're with Beth AQ in the Glass House for the next hour. The Glass House is presented each and every week on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to Elders past and present. You probably know by now, but this week is NAIDOC week. Happy NAIDOC week, a week rooted in resistance and a week to celebrate the longest continuing cultures in the world, a year to celebrate 65,000 years of history of this nation. Special shout out to all the First Nations writers, thinkers, community organisers, storytellers and everyone else that comes on this show to share their wisdom. It is a huge honour and privilege to share the mic with all of these wonderful people. This year's theme is Always Was and Always Will Be. Today in the Glass House, I'll be speaking with founding editor of Liminal, Leah Jing McIntosh, uh, to chat about their new anthology called Collisions, Fictions of the Future. And later in the show, I'll be joined by a Mungu Yamachi woman, academic researcher and organiser, Dr. Crystal McKinnon, who joins ahead of a lecture at NGV tomorrow night called Decolonize Your Feminism. Uh, she will be doing that alongside Paula Bowler and Kimberly Moulton. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
James Baldwin writes in Notes of a Native Son, I love America more than any other country in the world, and exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticise her perpetually. These words open the new liminal anthology, Collisions, Fictions of the Future, a collection born from the long-listed works of the inaugural Liminal Fiction Prize for Indigenous Writers and Writers of Colour Book. Uh, writers of colour and the formidable founding editor of Liminal Magazine and editor of this new anthology, Leah Jing McIntosh, joins me this afternoon. Leah, welcome back to the Glasshouse. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's a dream to be back, Beth. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to chat to you and chat about all of the wonderful work that you're doing with Liminal and outside of Liminal. Um, but I thought we could start with your your, your editorial statement from Collisions, as I kind of mentioned in the intro. You also state that I love the Australian writing community and exactly for this reason, I exist on the right to criticise it perpetually. And I think that this editorial reads almost like what I see to be your lifelong mission in championing voices that are underrepresented, misrepresented or just completely left out of the Australian and literature arts landscape. So I thought before we move into your work on the anthology, I'd love to kind of ask you a little bit about that motivation and that drive and kind of where that comes from to sustain this work. Oh, <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just, I think a lot about that Baldwin quote because he's he's saying it's not it's not that I hate this country that I critique it, but rather that I want to work to make it better. And I, I kind of take from that like this desire to work with community and to like visualize and form a future which is unlike the past and unlike the present um, in order to kind of work together and make something better. Mm. (laughs) So I feel like often when you critique something, especially in Australia, you're considered negative or as if you're not working as part of the team. But um, I think it comes from a real space and feeling of love for something um, it's it's a complex thing, I think, mm. always working towards trying to make something better. Absolutely. And, I mean, you do so much of this heavy lifting through your work at Liminal um, and I'm sure long before it. Um, I suppose we can't really talk about this anthology without talking about, you know, the context that surrounds it. Um, you know, I believe this started when you um, did some research into the Australian Literary Prizes, which, uh, no surprise, uh, you know, confirmed that there is a historical bias towards white writers. Um, can you tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about um, that research and what that process was like for you? Yeah, um, so I am a writer and I'm really interested in literary prizes, of course, as all writers are, I think. Um, and so I was. I was procrastinating one day, like two years ago, and I was like, let's see, I would be really interested to see who has won the Miles Franklin, because it is considered Australia's most prestigious literary award, and it's it's awarded to a book that is of the highest literary merit and presents Australian life in any of its phases. So I was like, okay, <laughs> let's see who's won it. Um, and it was first awarded in 1957, and it, so about a 63-year history. Um, but it wasn't until 2000 when an Indigenous writer was awarded 
the Miles Franklin, and that was Kim Scott for Benang. Mm-hmm. And since then, Alexis Wright, Michelle DeCretza, Melissa Lukashenko, and Tarjan Winch have won it. But even <laughs> that's like still only five people, and I can still count them on one hand. So I was like, this is really, this is really strange because I just don't feel like we are so untalented. Like it was very confronting because I was like, surely. Surely there are more than five out of 63 people of, of colour or Indigenous writers um, who should be considered to write work of quite high literary merit. Um, so that was really the seed of um, why I started putting together these lists of all of the other prizes, um, which all are quite <laughs> stark in their representation as well. Um, and from that, we considered running our own prize, and that was really the start of it, just seeing kind of a deficit, um, a real lack um, of, of representation. Um, yeah, I mean, the hangover from that history is so real through your research, and, mm. you know, it's just, it's apparent everywhere. Um, you then went to create the liminal inaugural liminal fiction prize which is incredible uh, a prize that's exclusively for indigenous writers and writers of color um, I'd love to know a little bit more about I suppose going from doing all this research having this idea for the prize and then kind of seeing it come to fruition yeah of course so we had the the True joy of um, receiving funding from the Australia Council at the end of 2018 to run this prize for 2019. Um, and as soon as we launched, we received kind of um, angry letters from <laughs> an unknown white man who runs the literary prize declaring he was not racist. And it was quite funny because it was the exact... Um, <laughs> it was the exact thing I kind of had prepared for but didn't really expect um, because I, I think it's quite obvious that we were making a statement and a claim about structural racism, about mm-hmm. the legacies of the White Australia Act, which um, was repealed like well after the Miles Franklin had been established, etc. Um, so that was quite interesting and there were quite a few people came in and were like, but I, isn't white or isn't white a colour? Um so it was that was really intense um, because it just seemed so clear cut at the time, so obvious, so logical that um, these inequalities exist, um, but obviously not to many people who can't quite conceptualise um, like daily racial inequalities and how they could contribute to structures. Um, so. That was interesting. Um, We had an incredible response to the prize last year. We had over 100 people enter. It was incredibly hard to to pick a a long list and then a short list. Um, But um, I had the real privilege of working with um, judges Brian Castro, Julie Coe, and Evelyn Araluen to to pick the winner and the runner-up. And that long list comprises... um, Collisions, which is the book we've just put out with Pantera Press. And I'm interested, I suppose, when you were conceiving of this prize, did you, like, when did the idea for the anthology come into it? When were you like, we've got an amazing long list, let's make it a book? <laughs> well, it was, it was kind of at the start because 
I was like, well, we could do this one thing, <laughs> but let's think, let's think bigger. What, how, like, surely there won't just be one amazing winning prize, one amazing winning piece. Like, surely there will be more than that. And it just felt like we needed to be able to recognize that it's not just one, it will be many. And there is talent. There is so much talent that we made it into a book. It sounds a bit silly, but I just was I just knew that we would receive incredible pieces and I wanted to be able to work with that rather than just with person who is very rightfully <laughs> awarded the prize. Mm. Um, yeah, I just love that um, you were able to celebrate you know, a col- like a collective of people as opposed to historically literary prizes are obviously championing the, you know, the one person. And I think that there's real value and merit in, I don't know, kind of claiming that there, there of course there are always multitudes of people that uh, their, their work is of merit, that they are the best. And I think that, yeah, for me, kind of reading through these pieces, that really comes through. And I never envy judges of any writing prizes, but it feels like, yeah, just being able to put this anthology together and really, you know, publish these works, it is a real kind of statement on the excellence um, that, you know, was amongst the long list that is that is now in the anthology. Oh, definitely. And I'm like, it really depends, like... If we had different judges, there might have been a different... There probably would have been a different winner. Like, <laughs> it's, it's just so impossible to choose. So, yeah, it was a real... We were really lucky to be able to um, kind of bring it all together um, into a book, <laughs> which is wild. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Leah Jing McIntosh uh, all about Liminal's new anthology called Collisions. Uh, speaking of the anthology, uh, I'd love to, I suppose, start with the, the title of the work. It is called Collisions. You kind of write about it as this, um, yeah, colliding as a kind of form of resistance and, and what it means to exist in in a non-white body and the kind of collisions that you come up against in, um, in a multitude of ways. Uh, can you kind of mm-hmm. speak to that idea of the title? Yeah, of course. I think it was, like, even from the start, I was, like, conceptualizing it as we collide um, with this concept of what <laughs> of what the Australian body should be, of what the Australian writer should look like, of what they should write about. Um, and it, it's not even, like, it's not a desire for violence. I'm incredibly anti-violence. <laughs> so it's very funny, really, the title. But it was, like well, if we are constantly placed in this position, maybe we should just um, kind of embrace it. Um, because, like, to exist in this non-white body is, is to collide against these ideals and against these concepts of excellence. Um, but also just, I really like the, it's like, you can also be quite gentle, I think, a collision. Um, and that, like, it's just an interaction with another person or considering how the past kind of rubs up against the present or the future. Um, yeah, there's like a lot of polysemy, a lot of nuance to me in that title um, that I think is kind of my, like really interrogated by the, the writers in the collection. And this anthology was edited by yourself also alongside Cher Tan, Adali Nash Hussain and Hassan uh, Ab. Abul, can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, putting, yeah, putting these pieces together, editing them and uh, your ideas behind how you organise the work? 
I'm, well, I'm always really interested in um, kind of a horizontal relationship with other editors. Like, I didn't want it to just be my <laughs> editorial vision because I know that, like, it's always better with more hands. And mm-hmm. sure, Adalia and Hassan are just so incredible as writers and as editors. Um, bringing them on board just felt incredibly natural and it was just a joy to work with them. We decided at the very start to just divide up the stories um, and we all took four and worked intimately with the writers on each one of them. Um, And because when you submit for a prize, it's not like it can always be edited afterwards, I think. It's a really fun thing to have an editorial process. Um, So we, we did that and then we came back and we thought through kind of a main arcing a theme and coming up with collisions and then after that figuring out how to kind of place next to each other. It was like it was like a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> it's um curation is always a really interesting part of putting things together. So it was a new experience for all of us but I think very Mm. Yeah, there's so many worlds that uh, you kind of enter through going through and reading this collection. There's work from, you know, emerge, like more emerging writers and perhaps more established writers, uh, you know, the works of Claire G. Coleman, Elizabeth Flux, um, just mm-hmm. to name a few. I, I suppose, can you tell me, I, I suppose, thinking about that uh as you said, putting together a jigsaw puzzle, like what kinds of things are you thinking about when you're thinking about, you know, where to place uh, pieces or what that looks like? Oh, <laughs> that's a, that's a very good question. Um, I think we came to this concept that we would kind of make the architecture of a collision. So we begin with the body and the very, the very visceral pieces kind of tracing memories of bodies through time. And then, like, I think the next few pieces are about, like, how spaces are hostile to certain bodies. Um, and we can really feel, I think, especially in Naima and Jason's pieces, like, how they present a body within spaces which are not meant for them. Mm-hmm. And I found those, like, quite interesting to put together. And we're, like, following this with kind of real, yeah, there's some really <laughs> viscerally, viscerally stressful pieces in this collection, <laughs> especially Jessica Jean-Mayu. Um I won't spoil it. I can't possibly spoil it, but it's... Um, quite violent and then we decided to kind of move into a momentum um so the second part of a collision where we collected writers who kind of considered shifting movements of body through time and then at the very end we called it contact where it's quite violent. <laughs> like we really are going from quite a beautiful love story to a quite violent end. Um, but it was just, it was interesting just kind of tracking themes that have been compelling writers who are all writing at the same time, but from so many different places, like obviously cultural places, but even geographical um locations throughout Australia. It's just all so-called Australia. Um, It was really interesting to just kind of figure out what could go next to which and 
if they could kind of resonate but also jar the reader a little bit. Mm. Um, I think short story collections are always really tricky. <laughs> I love, uh, yeah, I love that kind of framing that you put around it because it really does feel like there is, to the anthology itself, a real sense of movement in the sense that you know, you're looking back kind of on historical racism to kind of put something forward and kind of imagine a future. And I think, you know, fiction is obviously a really good way of um, imagining a different world of kind of accessing imagination. And there are all these, you know, really thought provoking pieces that do that. Um, I'd love to, I suppose, know your thoughts on, you know, from what I understand and know of uh, being a liminal fan, you know, it's very much started in the kind of nonfiction. It started in as a way of celebrating uh, Asian Australian artists and and, and people Mm. in all of their excellence and, you know, doing that through interviews and photography. And, you know, this as like a body of work as a fictional um, work, where does that sit, uh, I suppose, in your mind of the kind of liminal journey and, you know, what you kind of set out to achieve with it? Yeah, of course. Well, it's funny you frame it like that. I love, I love that. Um, I'm a literary. Oh, I'm doing my PhD in literary and cultural studies. So I've always been really interested in fiction, in like a strange and nebulous place between reality and fiction. Um, so I started Liminal because I couldn't see any Asian Australian writers in spaces that I wanted to. Um, so we really focused on talking about craft and talking about art. Um, and it's, it feels like a really natural progression to go from interviews with the artists um, to kind of then start supporting their actual art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, felt, it just felt like it wasn't even a question. It was kind of like, oh, this, yes, this makes sense. Um, not, we, we can't just keep critiquing institutions for not, giving people opportunities let's just give them opportunities ourselves (laughs) um so that yeah I really love I really love that we've been able to move from not just conversations about craft but publishing that craft Mm -hmm. publishing that fiction um it's been a real joy well, yeah, it's a, a massive congratulations to you and the whole team behind this anthology, but also just, you know, Liminal in general, you're just <laughs> making great work and um, as, a, as a reader and a consumer, like very much appreciate it. Um, Leah, as always, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you so much, Beth. We're just chatting there with founding editor of Liminal Magazine, Leah Jing McIntosh, also an editor of the new Liminal Anthology. It's called Collisions, Fictions of the Future, and it's out now through Pantera Press. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Uh, this Thursday at the NGV, uh, they're holding its annual lecture series lecture. Uh, this year sees leading First Nations women, Dr. Crystal McKinnon, uh, an Amagu Yamachi woman, Kimberly Moulton, a Yorta Yorta curator and writer, and Wemba Wemba and Gunditjmara, visual artist, curator, community arts worker, writer and academic, Paola Baola, uh, no stranger to the glasshouse, as they discuss perspectives on art, gender, power and feminism. And joining me this 
this afternoon uh, ahead of that is academic researcher and organiser, Dr. Crystal McKinnon. Uh, Crystal, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. All right. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. So, Crystal, I thought before we could, before we jump into talking about uh, the lecture, I know that you, you know, do work as an academic and a researcher. Could you perhaps start by uh, telling us a little bit about about your work? Um, I'm a historian, and um, so uh, I do a lot of different things. I um, and also a lot of justice projects. So I'm. At the moment, I've got a few things on the go, but one of them's um, looking at a history of uh, relationships between Indigenous people and the first, um, uh, like first contacts in around Geelong, Lotharong area, which mm. is where I'm living at the moment. So that's one of them. But um, yeah, the other things going on. <laughs> Aware of many hats. Uh, like yeah, so many people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I do work with the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women. Um, yeah, but different types of justice projects as well. So, yeah. And your work for, uh, I suppose, this lecture, it is seeking to unpack ideas uh, around decolonising feminism, a conversation that, you know, I think is slowly, uh, hopefully, floating to the top of consciousness in um, in this country. Um, but, you know, a conversation that has been, I suppose, had in, you know, different iterations um, for, for many years, um, particularly led by First Nations writers and, and academics and thinkers, you know, Eileen Morton Robinson comes to mind, uh, particularly with mm-hmm. the celebration of her, uh, the 20th anniversary of her book. Um, I'd love to know, I suppose, from your point of view, where you think we're currently at um, within, yeah, this conversation in this country. Yeah. I'll get to, I should. Um, I just want to um, say it's with the NGA, the National Gallery of Australia, not the NGV. Just. Um, I'm so sorry. I just. You know that's okay. I just um, <laughs> big, big to clarify that because it's a part of the um, it's the annual lecture, but it's sitting within the Know My Name Australian Women Artists 1900 to Now showcase that the NGA is running at the moment. So it's kind of looking to redress kind of gender inequity within the within the gallery, and it's. Um, uh, curating and collecting practices and that sort of thing, but mm. you should go and check it out online because it's got it's pretty amazing what they're doing at the moment. So yeah, so the annual lecture sitting in amongst um, that conference, which is running as I said at the moment. Um, and where is Australia at now in feminism? Is that what is that what the question was? <laughs> yeah, or just in terms of I suppose trying or yeah, I mean feminism in general, but then I suppose also just trying to understand what it means to yeah decolonize this uh, yeah this this movement. Um, Big question. Yeah, think, yeah, my take on decolonization is led by as you said people like um, Professor Riley Morton Robertson and. Um, uh, Professor Eve Tuck and others overseas who kind of talk about that decolonisation always has to centre um, repatriation of lands and lives, essentially. So um, without, you know, it's not just an acknowledgement, I guess, or kind of um, recognising that something's taking place. It's actually about working towards repatriations of lands and lives. So any type of movement, whether it's feminism or... Um, environmentalism or um, one of the other isms all um, should be looking to decolonise and work, working towards kind of repatriations of land. So, 
um, the way that any of these movements can do it is, you know, listen to what's happening on the ground, I guess, with um, where your actions are taking place, where you're living, all of those types of things. So, um, yeah, it's not something that's limited, I guess, to feminism, should I say. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose just looking at, or I suppose the framework of feminism and where we're at in this country, how do you feel, I suppose, where do you think feminism is at? And do you feel like there is a kind of push to um, decolonize this practice? Or do you feel like it should be kind of almost dismantled together? Because I suppose there's, you know, many arguments to say that certain types of feminism, you know, were kind of brought over uh, because of patriarchy and because of, um, I suppose, settler colonial um, ideas of of gender. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I'd love to know your your thoughts. <laughs> I um, actually talk about that in the um, in the provocation tomorrow night. That um, I'm for dismantling and building something new, and mm-hmm. I guess for the reasons that you were just discussing then regarding. Um, you know, there's lots of different types of feminisms, I guess, and but the majority of them are all kind of striving to look to be included within systems and striving for equality rather than, um, you know, building something new, that kind of glass ceiling mm. argument, you know, everyone celebrating Kamala Harris in um, America, for instance, but, you know, she's, you know, very pro-prison, pro pro the state and things like that, which, you know, um, I think the conversation will probably shift towards questioning whether these types of gains in representation actually amount to any kind of um, uh, redress of kind of structural inequalities on the ground. But, Mm. yeah. And do you feel like, I suppose, from the work that you do and the conversations that you have that... um, I don't know, you can kind of see a way towards this uh, this future where perhaps we absolutely, well, yeah, we kind of dismantle what we think of feminism because it is often rooted in, as you said, a lot of ideas of whiteness and, and you know, white supremacy and who comes next after white men um, is often white women and et cetera, et cetera. Do you, like, how do you see, uh, and I know these are really big questions, like perhaps a way to that um, that ideal of, I suppose, of centering uh, decolonisation as a practice as opposed to uh, perhaps ideas around around feminism? Um, I don't know if I've... Um, I think it's about everyday actions and all the things that we do in the everyday that amount to change. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know... Um, thinking about what we do in our every day and how what we do in our every day affects the overall kind of systems. You know, are we, say, for instance, like, in my work or, say, you know, um, if I was doing a project, you know, about Indigenous people, does it have Indigenous people on there? Is it um, is it including people from the ground in terms of what they need in terms of a project rather than this kind of top-down model? And people can do that in all of their ways that they work and practice um, uh, practice arts or, you know, practice their politics or their movement buildings, you know, whatever it is that they're doing, they can think about um, how their work is looking at including the Indigenous peoples whose lands where people's 
people are living and working and doing these things for them is your movement, including these people and including the people whose lands it is, or is it, you know, decentering them? And if you were decentering them, then I would argue that it's not really moving towards freedom or liberation, and it's actually a form of oppression as well. Mm. So, yeah, so it's just about, it's about unpacking what we do every day and how our everyday actions and the things that we do either work against or oppress somebody or are working towards everyone's liberation. And I guess the ways that um, people can do that is kind of look at the mo- look at black fellows on the ground and what's going on there, you know, um, and what's happening in Melbourne at the moment or, you know, Jabberong country, all the different things that are going on around the country, I guess. Mm. And do you feel like in your experience, in your work, that there's been more of a push for to have these conversations or to kind of look at, uh, I suppose, a decolonial framework as uh, perhaps more important than, than looking at, uh, I suppose, feminism as a framework? So, um, I just wonder how you've perhaps seen it change throughout your, your working life, these conversations. Um, I think that there's a lot more awareness of, um, you know, acknowledgements of country, for instance, and this, you know, notions of sovereignty and what that means and that sort of thing. I think that's definitely shifted in the past 20, 30 years, um, you know, and I think that there's far more people that are um, much more aware of matters. I don't know if it's social media and um, that sort of thing, but um, because, you know, people have always been fighting for this. It's, a, you know, one of the historical continuities of this country. You know, resistance has always taken place. And so I'm not sure, but, you know, why. I've put probably a number of factors as to why it's... Um, shifted but I think there's definitely a change in people's awareness and people trying to um, you know yeah yeah just thinking trying to think about my working life It's a big, yeah, it's a big broad question. No, no, no. You've, um, thank you so much for that answer. Um, if you have just joined us, uh, we are chatting to Dr. Christa, uh, Crystal McKinnon, uh, head of uh, a lecture that is happening tomorrow night for the NGA. I apologise for that before. Um, and I, I suppose I did want to uh, get your take. You know, as you said, the um, the lecture kind of precedes the gallery's um, exhibition opening of Know My Name, the Australian Women Artists from 1900 to Now. Um, how you see these conversations um, in, I suppose, uh, conversations that are solely to celebrate um, to celebrate women and, and, I suppose, different ideas of, of feminism? Um, what do I think of it? Oh, you know, I think it's great. I think that, um, you know, the gallery has, you know, talking about women and gender non-binary people and really challenging the ways that these um, museum and, you know, kind of collecting institutions, I guess, have kind of focused on men. And so this is one of the things that they're trying to do to, you know, re-look at that. But not only just change their collecting practices, you know, this conference is about kind of unpacking the different ideas and the different kind of um, structures, I guess, and talking about what has led to this and, you know, trying to build something new, I think. Mm. So I think it's great. 
And uh, tomorrow night you are going to be alongside uh, Kimberly Moulton and Paula Bowler uh, to, I suppose, extend these discussions um, and talk about art and gender and power um, and feminism. Can you tell us, I suppose, a little bit about um, what people can expect from from tomorrow night? Um, I think we're going to... We're working to really try and challenge some of the ideas around decolonisation and feminism and, um, you know, uh, kind of trying to have these difficult conversations, I guess, um, with people and trying to share how we can rebuild things anew, I guess. Um, Yeah. I think I think it's going to be great. Mm. Well, it's a um, incredible, yeah, an incredible lineup of opening night. I think it's going to be really fantastic. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for for your time this afternoon and, and for chatting to me. No worries. Thanks for having me. Happy Nadoc Week. <laughs> Happy Nadoc Week. Uh, we were just chatting there with uh, Dr. Crystal McKinnon. Um, who is going to be a part of the NGA's uh, annual lecture series that is happening tomorrow night. Um, they, uh, she'll be giving a, uh, a mini lecture alongside Paula Bola and Kimberly Moulton um, and yeah, some really interesting discussions to be had uh, around art and power and feminism and gender and that one is uh, ahead of the opening of the Know My Name, Australian Women Artist 1900 to now, uh, a major exhibition that's happening um, as part of the National Gallery of Australia to increase the representation of artists who identify as women in its artistic program. That one does kick off tomorrow night. You can jump online um, and you can access it completely online. kicks off at 6 o'clock. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 